Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Andrea O'Brien. Andrea O'Brien is the Municipal Outreach Officer and Provincial Registrar for the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. She comes from a background in folklore, history, and Newfoundland studies. She has been involved in the province's heritage sector both academically and professionally for 20 years. Andrea O'Brien, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to have you here. Because we work together, um, but we work on different floors, and sometimes I feel like we don't get to talk enough, so Mm -hmm. now we get to talk and have it recorded for posterity. Excellent. uh, we're, so we're going to talk about a couple of different things. I want to I want to talk about the work of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you know, I I work with the intangible cultural heritage piece, and you work more with the uh, the built heritage side of things. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, some of the built heritage programs. I want to talk about uh, designation and what that means in municipal designations versus provincial designations, and then I also want to talk about our our fisheries heritage preservation program. Maybe in in general, though, we'll start off. We'll talk about you. How 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 did you get interested in in folklore and and Newfoundland history? Um, well, when I started university, um, originally I was in sciences and it didn't click. <laughs> and I took one folklore course with uh, Dr. Larry Small, and the rest is history. I finally <laughs> I finally found what my uh, major was going to be, and uh, I started focusing mostly on Newfoundland folklore and Newfoundland history. Right. And I just had found my niche, I guess. Yeah. And that's how we met, because uh, I think I was just starting my uh, MA program, and you were just finishing up your undergraduate program yep. and then starting the MA program. You were a year or two after yep. me in the MA program. Yeah, yeah. I was two years behind you. Yeah. Which stream did you do? In the, in the, did you do the comprehensive stream? Or I the, did the comprehensive stream. Yeah, which yeah. is a comprehensive exam. So yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. And then you've been working now for the Heritage Foundation for how many years? Twelve years. Twelve years. Yeah, it's astonishing, eh? Like, mm-hmm. we, we were so young. I know. <laughs> I feel old when I say I'm in this sector for 20 years. I know, 20 years. I know, because I've been with the Heritage Foundation now since 1995, 96. Mm-hmm. So I've been there for 20 years. And I, and we have young people who come I around know. and you feel ancient, right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> We've become heritage ourselves. <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to talk about uh, heritage designation then and what that, what that means. So uh, essentially there's kind of two different types of designation. There's provincial and then there's municipal. Mm-hmm. The Heritage Foundation does uh, provincial designation and, and then municipalities do the municipal designation. So what's the difference? What does it mean? What does heritage designation mean? Well, provincial uh, designation um, is an authority that's provided to us uh, through the Historic Resources Act. Because we're a crown corporation of the government. We're um, kind of managed through um, the Department of Tourism. Culture and Recreation, whatever they're called these days. Yes. Um, So we, we have that mandate to designate properties as heritage properties. And it's through an application process, so we just can't go out and and you know arbitrarily give properties designation. So owners of uh, legal owners of uh, properties can apply to us twice a year for heritage designation, and we have two deadlines: uh, one in March and one in August. And it's it's not really a, a long process. Um, you know, there's an application form that has to be filled out where. People explain um, what the architectural value of the building is, what the historical and cultural value is, provide us with some pictures, and uh, then that goes to a a selection committee twice a year, and they determine which properties then will be designated as provincial registered heritage structures. Right. 
Yeah. And then once you are designated then by the Heritage Foundation, there's the there's the opportunity to apply for grants for restoration purposes. Yep. And they can apply for grants uh, twice a year, same as designation. And right now the maximum grant is 50000 a year. And that is just for exterior restorations. It's, it's not for the guts of the building. It's just for the outside of the building. And um, that would be on a 30-70 cost shared basis. So for a maximum grant of $50,000 uh, reimbursement to the owner, that would be a total cost of $167,000 on the exterior right. building. Yeah, so the property owner still puts in the majority of the, of the funding. Yes, yeah. they put in all, well, initially they'll put, they put in, in the all 100%, the funding. Yeah, and then, and they then were reimbursed, yeah. when everything is approved, when the restoration is approved, then they're reimbursed their 30%. Right, yeah. So now how does, how does the provincial designation differ uh, from municipal designation? Uh, municipal designations are uh, designations that di- different municipalities around the province make within their own jurisdictions. And they have their own rules and regulations regarding what they'll designate. It's, it's totally up to the individual town. Uh, the power to do that is in the Municipalities Act, but towns have to make heritage regulations, kind of like a, you know, a bylaw um, regarding heritage property in the community. And towns can designate uh, buildings, structures, and land. And it kind of it puts a red flag on properties. So if people are deciding that they want to make changes to a property, you know, in most cases you'll have to go to a town council, municipality, to get a permit to do that. And, and then these properties have been red flagged as being heritage. And there's statements written saying what should be protected and it's basically in the town's hands then to protect those properties. Right. And I guess with, uh, with provincial designation, there, there's uh, kind of an understanding that the, the structure is somehow significant to the province or to the region, mm-hmm. um, whereas with the municipality, it's really at the municipal level that the yeah, significance is measured. And some of the properties that municipalities have designated are properties that we have designated as well, and then it has that kind of extra layer of protection. Right. Uh, but a lot of properties, as you say, are things that are very specific to that community. And, you know, things that we wouldn't be able to designate provincially. You know, there's some areas on landscape that have, you know, legends associated with them. Um, I'm thinking of the Devil's Rock in right. News. yeah. You know, apparently a priest met the devil on this crossroads one night and, and sent him into this rock and banished him in there and... If the rock ever cracks open, the devil will appear again. Yeah, and you can see the rock, the little, you know, <laughs> split going down the rock, and that's something that's town of Renews designated. That's not necessarily something we can designate, but it is a very localized tale about that area. Yeah, and we have examples of we have a lot of rocks that municipalities have designated. <laughs> New Perlican. New Perlican has a sitting rock. The sitting rock, which is where people went to make out. Yes, it's yeah. where you brought your, <laughs> when you were courting, that's where you brought your partner, I guess. And that's great. So, and they've designated the liberal rock, where apparently the guys in the community would go and fight about politics. Right. And the majority of them, I guess, were liberals, so they called it the liberal <laughs> rock. Yeah. You know, there's bell rock in Fermuse, where um, at one point a bell had been on that rock, but... Um, after a while just kind of became a play area for the community right and before that was even designated the department of uh, highways were going to you know do some blasting in that area for the road 
and people in the community actually went up and stopped them from blasting Bell Rock. So these very small, what we would think are insignificant places, have a lot of meaning to communities. Yeah. I remember the, the town of St. Lawrence at one point designated their soccer field. They have their field. soccer field designated, yeah. Yeah, because they're mad for soccer in yep. St. Lawrence. It's soccer very much capital part, of Newfoundland. It's, it's part of their heritage, yeah. Yep. yeah. And so that's interesting. I, I think that's a fascinating way that, that uh, communities can kind of uh, protect and engage about their, mm. about their heritage. I'd love to see more of those kind mm. of cultural yeah. landscape pieces. And I mean, it allows them to highlight what is unique about their community. Yeah. You know, because sometimes we have this idea, oh, every airport is the same, but, you know, and every small town is the same, but there's something unique about every place in this province. Yeah. Do you have a favorite designation? Uh, my favorite uh, provincial designation, yes, is in Ogrepit Cove. Yeah, which is, uh, is a collection of, uh, it's, there's, there's a, a, a the house. Crowley, and the Crowley property. Crowley property, and it's yeah. a house and a series of outbuildings. Yeah. Why do you like? Why do you like it? It's it's in my mind. It's my picture of what an ideal place in Newfoundland would have been. The ideal yeah. little outport. And had I been born in another time, that was where I probably would have lived with my big muscular fisherman husband. <laughs> yeah, I I love it because it it's one of the one of those good examples of a building with all of its outbuildings oh, yeah, still yeah. preserved. Yeah, and quite often when when buildings come up for designation. Um, the the main house or the main building has remained, but all those kind of mm-hmm. vernacular buildings, those yeah. small folk architecture yeah. buildings, have vanished. Yeah, and and one of one of the places I like municipal wise in Jackson's Arm, um, in White Bay. Yeah. Okay. My bay is right. White Maybe. Bay. Maybe White Bay, Green Bay, somewhere out there. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's a similar kind of property. It was built in the 1940s, so and it is very much a 1940s kind of square house. So it has the door over to the side, which uh, two windows on top, one window on bottom. But the collection of outbuildings there is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And the property was left to the town, and uh, they have uh, fixed up the fisheries buildings. But you can actually land at the fisheries building, and you walk up this little path, and there's a hen house, there's a sheep house, there's a hay house. Like all these little buildings are still there. Yeah. You know, to me, it's a typical kind of what you would think of as a pre-confederation property in Newfoundland. Yeah, there's a, there's another one that I love in uh, Conception Harbor yep. that has a beautiful, it has like the little white house and then all these lovely yep. red ochre buildings that are all mm-hmm. kind of connected. Yeah, yeah, really nice. Yeah, kind of it gives you a sense of what Outport Newfoundland was like yeah. in the area in the era before confederation. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. most people's properties were that way. There was several outbuildings. If they were close to water, there was a path that led down to their premises on the water. Yeah. And, you know, it was very... Um, a different kind of layout of what we see now when we drive through more rural areas yeah. in the province. Tilting has a couple of properties like that too, which have the which have the main house and then a, and a store and a stage and, yeah. and the, the fisheries buildings that are yeah. And I guess to it. And, and Tilting was designated a, a registered heritage district for that cultural landscape. That's you know the houses might have been modernized there. Um, but the form of a lot of the houses is the same. Yeah. But it was the actual cultural landscape of, you know, those meadows connecting to, uh, you know, your your home, connecting to the ocean. So it was all kind of that flow of of uh, land use mm-hmm. was the reason why. All the paths there. and fences and gardens yeah. and yeah, yeah. hay sheds and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And it's yeah. something that, you know, I remember that in my community and I can name the places in my community, the meadows and the places in the woods, but... As our lives are changing, it's things that they're not applicable necessarily to a newer generation. 
but at one point they were very much of what it was to belong to a place yeah that you knew those neighborhoods in your community and you knew whose whose wharves were along the harbor and you knew whose meadows were in the woods and mm. and there were things that were all respected you know those you wouldn't go in someone else's meadow and and plant your garden right you know it was those kind of ownership um you know issues weren't they weren't uh, a problem for people you know? yeah and you grew up on, on the Southern Shore. You grew up in Cape Royal, yes. right? And you have yeah. a couple of municipally designated uh, structures in Cape Royal. In Cape Royal, they designated the old cemetery. Yeah. Um, partly because it was uh, a lot of the old family plots are still there. Um, you know, in past few decades, because of maintenance issues, a lot of cemeteries have gotten rid of their fences. So now you go in and it is just the tombstones and, and the landscape. But in Cape Royal, in the old cemetery, there's still a lot of family plots with their individual fences. Some are wood, some are iron, uh, some are rope, all different types of materials. And uh, that's one thing that the town that the town protected when they designated it was these family plots. Mm-hmm. That any fa- family plots that will remain fenced have to stay have to stay fenced. Because mm. it is a very, I mean, it's very unique. Now, you know, when you do go around and something that I'm aware of when I'm passing cemeteries you don't see those those family plots as much yeah and cemeteries are one other type of cultural landscape that uh, municipalities have really been engaged in and, and interested in designating yeah a lot of I mean towns from one end of the province to the other have designated cemeteries yeah. some of them very small some of them might be just one one headstone yeah and some are, are very huge ones like the one in Cape Royal yeah yeah, and they're they're a great place where uh, our our history is told. You know, you can there's it's great. They're a great resource for genealogists, and there's really great material culture there. Great yeah. symbolism, yeah. yeah. And every cemetery is like. I mean, in in my in the old cemetery in Cape Royal, there's a story of this Yetman guy who was uh, shot in the harbor by an American schooner captain because he had said, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm getting off the schooner, and he <laughs> killed him in the harbor while he was trying to get off the schooner, and he's buried up in the back of the cemetery. And every year there's flowers appear on that grave. And then there's another stone that's, um, people thought it was written in Gaelic, but it's actually in Latin. But it was a priest who had died in the community. And there was this whole story about how his family came over from Ireland, because he was originally from Ireland. And that's why people thought it was Gaelic, I guess, on the stone. (laughs) And that his family came over and snuck his body away in the middle of the night. Really? Yeah. And it's one of those, uh, it's one of those... uh, Tomb. Like a slab tomb with yes. a with a stone laid out yep. flat. Yeah. Yep. Huh. I had never heard that story before. Yep. And uh, I don't. It's just, and it's just you know. There's one of uh, there's French people buried in our cemetery who apparently were in Cape Royal for a few seasons and something happened. They got sick and they're buried in the cemetery. And there's you know World War One vets are there. World War Two vets. There's such there's so many stories in every cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. They're great repositories for local history. Uh, one of the other pro- programs I wanted to, to touch on um, is the Fisheries Heritage Preservation Program. Um, and this is a program that's been running for a, a number of years now, yeah. uh, early 2000s. Early 2000s it was started. Yeah. yeah. And so what's the goal of that program? Well, I think it was started initially, and you were there when it was yeah, started. It was... I think it was started, you know, because it was about 10 years after the moratorium. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, you know, a realization that a lot of these buildings that were so emblematic of what Newfoundland Labrador is, no longer had the primary use. So there was a concern that, you know, we may start losing some of those buildings. And it was a very small project, 
started with uh, pilot projects, which were very successful. So then the process was expanded and opened up. And I think to this point, we've probably done about 350. Right, yeah, it's a lot of buildings. buildings. Yeah. So, like in some places, like Tilting, Joe Bat's Arm, Durrell, and in, in Twillingate, like a lot of those are properties that we've helped to, uh, to restore and were very small grants. In the beginning, they were $2,000. Now they're 5000 for individuals. But the people who owned those properties did a lot of work, which $2,000, yeah. incredible amount of work. Yeah, yeah. I, I really thought it was a great program, you know, that, that we really did see some good work happening at the community mm-hmm. level and, and, and in a way help kind of retain the skills around mm-hmm. uh, maintaining some of yeah, those buildings. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, a lot of our restoration projects in terms of our designated properties, it's a contractor a lot of times who comes in and does work. But with these fisheries ones, it was the people who owned the buildings who went and did the work. Yeah. And uh, and when one was fixed up, it was in some communities, it was almost like a competition then. Okay, he's fixed up his shed, now I'm going to fix up mine. Yeah. And I, I remember going to Pound Cove, and there was three fellas in Pound Cove who did up their properties. And I went to inspect them after they had finished them. And they were in total competition with each other of who, <laughs> who had done the best restoration. Yeah. And when I was going around inspecting the stages, they were following me around. They'd take the tape measure out of my hand and help me measure up the buildings. And, you know, oh, who do you think did the best project now? What, did, what do you think of his shed now? And what do you think of my store? And I, I didn't say anything because I wasn't going to yeah, take sides. Yeah, it's not a competition, but, yeah. But, I mean, they were, they, the three owners followed each other, you know, to each property that I was going to. Yeah. And, and making comments about what one guy had done on his property and what, another guy had done on his property. I, I remember when that program started, you, you mentioned that there were some pilot projects. And I think one of the pilot projects was on Change Islands. Mm. And, I, and I quite specifically remember a woman phoning the Heritage Foundation who was quite irate that we would, we would give $2,000 to someone in the community to fix up, uh, you know, a tumbling down mm-hmm. fishing stage. Um, but that was a really good example of where, you know, one or two people fixed up their stages and then a couple more people fixed up their stages. And, and sometimes we're doing it without money from the Heritage Foundation. They yep. were just, it was kind of a snowball effect. You know, one yep. person did it, another person did it. You had to keep up with the Joneses, right, yes. to, to have yep. your fishing stage uh, look look presentable. Yeah. Yep. It's been a great program. And the program still continues. It's kind of uh, it's slowed down a little bit. slowed down. Yeah. And uh, this year we're hoping to focus in on some communities and specifically communities that haven't had major restoration projects in the past and communities that have clusters of buildings and we would like to work in conjunction with either a town council or a heritage group within the community who you know would kind of go out and talk to the owners see if the owners want to be part of this project uh, for the physical restoration and if we get a community or communities that come on board uh, as part of it, we will go out and do an ICH right. component with the community. <clears throat> yeah, so we'd love to do, you know, some oral histories and document some of those traditions, mm. those, you know, the fishing-related traditions. I think that'd be a really great, yeah. great and type of project. And it's, depending on what part of the province it's in, different communities have different fishing traditions. Yeah, yeah, like we had a, we had a fisheries project a couple of years ago in, in Pooch Cove, and we've actually, we had them in an, on the program, and, and uh, they talked about their fisheries heritage project where they were looking at cod liver oil. Mm-hmm. 
And, and you know, they all had little cod liver or cod liver oil factories, you know, mm-hmm. around their stages and whatnot. But you're right; different communities had slightly different fisheries. Different yeah. people did uh, different things. Yeah. I was just up in uh, Makovec, and they have these fabulous smokers. Like mm-hmm. everyone's got these little smokers yep. uh, here sure. and there. And I thought that'd be a neat project to do something on, like to to fix up smokers. I think maybe in the early years of the program, there was a smoker that got fixed up on um, on Random Island. And I there think there was one in. Fogo, oh, yeah. a smaller one. Yeah. But the one around the island was like a big yeah. production one. They were. Uh, Joan Anderson, who is um, uh, on the board of the Heritage Foundation from Makovic, she told me this funny story about how there was a, a new teacher in Makovic. And it was the time of year that people were getting their smokers on the go. And the teacher was from Newfoundland or something, hadn't spent any time in Labrador. And this, old, this older woman uh, opened the door one day. There's a knock on her door, and here was the new teacher. And he said, Mrs., he says, uh, your outhouse is on fire. <laughs> He had no idea what the smoker was. He just thought her outhouse was on fire. And I guess he never lived that down in mm-hmm. that, uh, in that I wouldn't community. say, no. Um, so for, for the community grants, what's, what's the money that communities can get for the fisheries ones? For the restoration <coughs> component, it's $10,000. Yeah. So that's the maximum. Yeah. So it's a maximum project of uh, about $20,000. And this is for, you know, half a dozen buildings. Sure, a know, cluster. Around, around that number. Yeah. Um, for the individual structures, it still will be the owners that could apply. But I guess with the community um, projects, there's a bit of an incentive there because you might have a labor component that could possibly be covered under a community project. Yeah. You know, through... Um, a JCP grant a JCP or something grant like that. Something, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it would only be materials then that would have to be... And there's no deadline for that program, is There's there? no deadline for the fisheries grants, either individual or community. They're open at any time. Uh, the community grants, we have to actually, you know, have a, a bigger conversation with a community right. about that. Right, But for the individual grants, uh, those can be sent in at any time, very simple application to fill out. And it is kind of first come, first serve. It's then, first right? come, first serve. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so if people want more information on the uh, the Fisheries Heritage Program, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, they, talk, they can call me directly at uh, 1-888-739-1892, extension 4, and uh, get an application out to them, have a, a chat about their property, and explain the program in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. And what's your email address, just so people want to find you uh, online? A-N-D-R-E-A at heritagefoundation.ca. Andrea at heritagefoundation.ca. Okay. Um, one of the other uh, little projects I wanted to talk to you about was, uh, because we're interested in, in these projects now that kind of link the built heritage and the intangible cultural heritage. And you did an interesting uh, interview-based project with uh, a project out on the West Coast with Frida Gillis. Can mm-hmm. you can you tell me about that that property and how how that yeah. project came to be? It all happened, all of it by accident. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> several years ago, I had been doing a church survey of the entire island, and when I was driving through uh, on the West Coast, and I went through Cardiville, and this one particular house just popped out at me, and I had never seen a house like it before, you know. I'd seen older pictures of historical pictures of houses like that, not one that was still standing. And I had I took a picture of it at the time. I didn't know anything about it. And years and years later, this application came across my desk, and when I opened it up immediately, I was like, I remember that house. And mm. I, at the time, I didn't remember where I saw it, but I remember I remember driving by it and remarking it and taking a picture of it. And it was in Cardiville, and it was uh, the Leg Homestead. And it had been um, a farmhouse, an old farmhouse, and still the huge farm land all around it. 
and it is it's right on the coast so as well so I had you know I was trying to get some background information on it there was some in the application uh, but they had mentioned um, a possible person who had built the house so I just said I kind of googled that last name and on a genealogy site I had found this guy who had mentioned this man's name and said it was his great grandfather and that his daughter was still alive this man who had built a house like the daughter can't be alive you know this is I, I, I in my mind I was thinking the house was mid 1800s even though the people when they put in application they were saying 1900s but the style of it was so older old, looking older yeah. looking yeah so anyway I had I contacted the people who had put in the uh, application and I mentioned this lady's name to him Frida Gillis and um, no that's a lie I, I I emailed the guy who had this post on the genealogy site and asked him what his grandmother's name was and he told me and then I, had, I then I contacted the people who put in the application anyway through the jigs and reels of it all I managed to uh, to track down Frida and she was a hundred and two turning 103 so this was in 2013 13 yeah so I arranged that I'd go out and I'd meet with Frida this 100 102 year old lady yes so I'd go out first of all and and see the house and then I'd go out and the house was in Cardiville and Mrs. Gillis lived in uh, St. Fintan's just down the road so anyway went in that day and sat down talking to Mrs. Gillis and you know, I said, "Did your what's your dad's connection to the property?" And she said, "Oh, he built that." And he told me he built it, and I said, "Where did a style come from?" I said, "You know, were you how old were you when he built it?" And she said, oh, "It was early early nineteen hundreds when he built it." She said, "I was probably just born when he built it," and uh, and I said, "Well, where did he get the style?" It, it to me, it's not a you know, it's not the style of building people will build in the nineteen hundreds. And she said, "Well, his father was from England." So when Dad got a certain age, he was sent back to England for his education, and he became uh, he did some drafts work over there, and he was a plasterer and a painter. And she said, and I went over myself to see where he came from. Shender's houses like that everywhere. Hmm. So it kind of solved a mis- solved the mystery of why this house, house, was unusual, house built yeah. in the early nineteen hundreds looked like this far- looked like, it looked like a farmhouse from England from the seventeen hundreds. Except it was made of wood. But I guess, you know, when this man went back to England, that's all he saw was that type of house, which would have been, they would have been probably a couple of hundred years old. Yeah. But it was it was the exact model of a English country farmhouse. Yeah. And when he came back to Newfoundland from uh, studying in England, I guess he went to like high school or whatever in England. And when he came back, he was, I guess, about in his, young, in his early 20s. And that's what he went into was was carpentry, and he was kind of a jack of all trades, but he was known as a really good carpenter. Yeah, and that house is still kind of under a process of restoration. It's under a process of restoration now. Yeah, uh, there's the heritage group that uh, now owns the building. I think they've secured the roof, and you know it's it's going to be a big project because you know it, it is a small community, and it's it's a fairly sizable building, and. Uh, but hopefully they will be able to tackle it in stages and and get it back to, you know, 
the kind of condition it had been in. It's it's actually not in that not in real bad condition. Yeah. Um that's great. Uh thank you for for coming in. Uh one thing before we finish up, uh I just wanted to uh get you to make a plug for the Facebook uh page because I know you're doing lots of fun stuff with uh, yeah, what, we, what's what's happening on the Facebook we page. We started up our Facebook page um last fall, I guess, and it's growing in popularity, but we have themes every day. We have Municipal Monday to show what towns are designated. Yes, it's designated on Tuesdays, which is just those kind of properties that you're not you mightn't think they're designated, but they are. Wednesday is where is it Wednesday? And we show a picture and people have to guess where it is. And we have one girl who's guessing every week. So <laughs> she's like the heritage guru of Newfoundland Labrador, I think. Thursdays is throwback Thursdays. So historic pictures of designated properties. And Fridays is fishery Friday, where we show our fisheries uh, projects. So there's always something new. So people can go there and find out information on yep. our Facebook page, Heritage Foundation Probably. of Newfoundland and Labrador. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening. <laughs>